He is good, isn't he? Very, very, very good. You know, the Lord loves us. He really loves us. He does, and he's in our lives, and he wants to use us, and he has great plans for us, and they're plans to prosper us and not to harm us, to give us a hope in a future. But why didn't Stephen get that? Remember? Stephen just died, we saw last week, for, the, for faith, and because he was following Christ, and he died for these hard people he was trying to reach, and you've got hard people in your life too. Amen. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. We have hard people. Maybe you feel like some of those hard people are sitting next to you. Maybe not. I hope not. But they could be in your neighborhood. Right? They could be in your family. You might have an elderly parent who's bitter and, and who has walked away from the Lord. Maybe you do. Maybe you've got a rebellious son or daughter. And they have just said, forget it. Uh, I don't believe in the faith that you've taught me and you raised me in. Maybe you have an unbelieving spouse or an unbelieving neighbor, and, uh, but you have compassion for them, and yet they don't want anything to do with your faith, and they, they let you know that. Maybe you even have a bona fide enemy. You know, we do get those enemies every so often. Or they're an enemy of your faith, and they're militant about it. They wear the T-shirt. Uh, they work against what you're, you're standing for, and they're just an enemy. And so the question becomes, and, and that we've been looking at, and we, we talked about it again last week, is how far do you, do you go for these hard people? And what we found out is you can go pretty far. And Jesus has us go pretty far. Uh, and there's a reason that we go pretty far, which is all the way. Like Stephen went, he went all the way. And, and would God expect that of me? You know, some of us think, you know, well, Stephen went all the way because Stephen was the super saint. Come on, and I'm not a super saint. I'm just little old me going to church in Wichita, Kansas. And I'm, you know, that happened in the book of Acts, but I'm not called to give my life for my faith or for a group of people that I, I love and I care about. Yeah, it might be true, and it probably is true for most of us. But it may not be true. We sometimes think we're just a little old us, you know, or we think that Stephen was just that super saint, or Stephen was just that young man, that young, strong man of faith, single, not much to lose. You know, shoot, he could go out there and live dangerously and take risks. I can't do that. I've got a spouse. I've got a family. I have a home. I've got jobs. I've got dreams. I still have my hair, right? I want to live for a while. I want to live. I have a lot to lose. And so it becomes, we feel like we have higher stakes maybe than Stephen had. Yet I'm here to tell you this morning, Stephen had a lot to lose. He had a lot to lose. It's so hard for me, man, to think about friends that I believe they went to see Jesus. They left this planet earlier than I ever expected. Earlier than I've ever wanted them to leave this planet. And yet they were people of faith. And I know that God was with them. I want you to know something. Stephen was not a super saint. The Bible tells us, though, that he was a man full of God's grace. Full of grace. You know, grace, we, we sometimes look at it and think that's kind of hoo-foo, fluffy, marshmallowy, nicey. Grace 
is I'm giving you what you don't deserve. I'm going to take the high road when you take the low road. I'm going to, I'm going to believe for you when you are totally against me. That's what grace is. Grace is pretty robust. And, and grace is not free. We sometimes think, oh, grace is just free. And grace is non-confrontational. And grace is just kind of smoothing things over. No, grace is not that. Grace costs. And so he was a man full of God's grace, but it says he was full of God's power. Would people say that of us? We're full of God's grace and full of God's power. And maybe because he was full of God's power, he was full of God's grace. He was full of something. It says he was a man full of the Spirit. And the Spirit has been sent. It's the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, right? And it's the, the Lord himself. It's God who comes to live within us. Are you full of that Spirit? Are you full of grace? Are you full of that power? He had a lot to offer. Stephen did, but he had a lot to lose. So why, again, and, and we, we, we really didn't answer this question before, and we're going to try to answer it today. What did Stephen understand and experience that maybe sometimes you and I, uh, who follow Christ, don't always understand? Maybe we understand it sometimes, but we don't always understand it. And we don't always experience it in our service to others and in our witness, especially to hard people. We're not quite there where Stephen might have been, and we're not quite there where Stephen might have been experiencing so that Stephen walked the walk he walked. And we have a harder time with some hard people that we have in hard places, and maybe we feel we can't mimic or, or live up to what he did because we're not understanding or experiencing what he did. Why did Stephen go so far? Because he went all the way. So I want you to take a look with me at a couple smaller passages in the, in the big story of Stephen. And it's in both chapter 6 and 7 of 8. And I want you to catch a glimpse of what he understood and what he was experiencing. So if you have a Bible, I want you to read with me again real quick. And let's discover why Stephen would go so far for hard people. And our first passage is Acts 6, 8 through 7, 1. Let me read that again. Now Stephen, the scripture says, a man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the, of the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandra, as well as the providence of Sicilia and Asia. And Stephen went into these more Gentile Jewish synagogues or more Hellenistic Jewish synagogues to reach these people. But these people had had a tough past, and so they're going to hold to their faith pretty vehemently. And so Stephen goes in. Stephen was a Greek too, so he probably attended that synagogue before he went into it. He probably had family members there and friends. And it says that he went in, and it says that these people from the synagogue began to argue with Stephen because of what he was sharing. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, well, because you know, if you can't beat people, what you're going to do is you're going to assassinate their reputation, and that's what these people did. And it says that we've heard Stephen speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law 
And what did they do? They seized Stephen. And they brought him before the Sanhedrin, which is the governing ruling party of the Jews, the religious governing part, uh, party. And they produced, he said, before them false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, that's the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, and he'll change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. And it's terrible when you got all these people interviewing you and the album staring right at you. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Are these charges, charges true? So right off the bat, I've got some questions I want you to, and they're going to be up on the board here, I want you to consider to begin to focus our thoughts. What motivated Stephen? What caused him to go into the synagogue of the freedmen? Was he just bored and wanted to stir up some things? We used to do that as kids. When we were bored, we'd run over to across the street, we'd get the brothers to start fighting with each other. We'd start stuff. Just because we wanted entertainment. Did he do that? Because he was bored and wanted to stir these people up and thought this would be a fun thing to do on a Sunday afternoon? I don't think so. What caused him to go into this synagogue and tell them the good news of Jesus and debate with them? What was motivating him? Two, what kept him there through the intensifying opposition? What kept him there? You know yourself, it's starting to get hot in the kitchen. A lot of times people get out of the kitchen, right? But he's staying in there with all these people against him. But he's hanging in there. Why? What caused him, finally, three, what caused him to give this hostile, give the hostile Sanhedrin a lengthy defense? And you know it was like 60 verses, right? That was his defense. It's the longest sermon ever recorded in, in the book of Acts. You think I preach long? Come on. Stephen just let them have it. And he gave them a history lesson and he rewrote their story, right? Uh, what caused him to give that lengthy defense instead of washing his hands of them and walking away? Because you know that you, you yourself, you might have just went, ah, forget it, man. You're going to act like a jerk. You don't want to hear what I have to say. I'm just washing my hands of it. I'm, I'm, I'm brushing the dust off my feet. I'm out of here. I don't need this kind of aggravation. I don't need this trouble. I don't need this opposition. He didn't do that, though. He didn't do that. He continued the communication. Wow, think about those questions. Now, let's move on to our next passage. It's found in Acts 7, and it's 54 through 60. Well, apparently his defense was pretty hot. It di they didn't like it, and this is how they responded. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. I mean, they are hacked. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And remember, we talked about the fact that you normally have Jesus sitting. He's standing. People stand because they stand in honor, don't they? He was standing in honor. He was standing in respect of Stephen and of his follower who was about to follow in his footsteps. 
So he's standing. And then it goes on. And, he, and the whole, he looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so what he decides to do, he decides to tell them what he sees. Ah, that's not going to be good. They didn't like what he heard said before. They're not going to like this either. Look, he said, I see the heaven open and the Son of Man, which was another title for Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. This Jesus who you crucified, this Jesus who you rejected, who was the Messiah. And he's standing next to God. And I see it. Wow. This was beyond what they could bear. At this, they covered their ears and, they, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. And we know that probably the reason they have that first-hand account, right? Because Saul became Paul not too long later in the book of Acts and turned to Christ. And the Christ he was persecuting and the believers he was persecuting and, and even stoning and putting to death, he now became one of them. And so he knew what happened. And he knew what Stephen said and he recounted it to Luke as Luke was writing this account. Two more questions to kind of focus us. What caused Stephen to tell them the truth even though they would reject it? What's going to cause you to go out on a limb with people and tell them the truth even though they do not want to hear it? What's going to cause you to do that? You're taking a tremendous risk, aren't you? And two, why was he willing to sacrifice his life? Why was he willing? And how could he pray? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How could he pray that prayer and mean it? Okay, this isn't just church stuff. This is real reality. How could he do that? When the moment it gets hot in the kitchen for us, we want to always scream and yell about the injustice. This isn't fair. This isn't right. I shouldn't have to love these people. God doesn't want me to serve them. God doesn't want me to give to them. They're not perfect. They're idiots. They're this. They're that. And yet you have a man here who has given his life and praying for them and that the sin would not be held against them as he gives up his life and his dreams for them. Wow. That's amazing. That's better than Braveheart, golly, when he died. Jude, you know, because he died in there alone. Did he even have any of his buddies around him, fellow believers with him? Man, wow, how could he do that? How could he do that? And I'm here to tell you, I'm going to give you a simple answer. Stephen understood some things, and, and this is what he understood. He understood the truths that John the Apostle tried to tell us in 1 John 4, 7 through 12. But he also experienced these truths in his heart and in his relationship with the Lord. And he lived by this experience. He understood that as well in the passages that we had read 
already earlier, he understood this love. He experienced this love. And so, if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, and it'll be up on our screen. And let's read what, if I could ever get there, let's read what he understood. Because he understood what John was talking about, and this is what he understood, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, John writes, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. You ready? He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Could never pay that debt. Could never never earn our way to heaven. We're going to be judged and condemned and damned to hell. But God himself satisfied his own law. And paid the debt for us through the death of his son. And it goes on, dear friends, since God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Thirteen times you'll read the word love in that passage. Short little passage. Thirteen times. But I want to know what love is. I've recently asked this in in a wedding ceremony that I did, and, and, and this is real germane to what we are talking here. Because love is not what we think love is. Do you have a a working definition of what real love is? And the love they're describing here is what agape love is? You know, when you ask most people what love is, they think they know what love is, but then you go say, define love for me. They can't define it. They don't have a working definition. So how do you do something that you don't have a working definition for? We all think instinctively we know what love is, but yet we can't tell anybody what love is. Do you see the problem there? There's a, there's a problem. We don't really know what love is. Because we can't actually define it. Contrary to our culture and, and what we hear and what we feel, we think love is a simple, warm feeling. Man, you love someone when you have this warm feeling inside. Man, you love somebody when you have affection for them. Or you're, you have a passionate yearning or attraction to them. You love them. I'm here to tell you, and you know this is true, your feelings and your passions, they go up and down just like the temperature in the stock market goes up and down. They they ebb and they flow. You can't trust them. They're super fickle, your emotions. One moment, man, you think I'm in love. This is the one. And the next moment, oh, man, they are nobody. They are nobody to me. You've experienced that in your own life. I've experienced that in my life. So, you know, we know that just because our feelings go up and down doesn't mean that we fall out of love with somebody. It doesn't mean that. Just because we don't have a warm feeling toward them, it doesn't mean that we don't love them anymore. Or that our love has waned. Or that we don't have affection for them anymore or attraction to them anymore. 
Because love is something other than a feeling. It's other than an affection. It's other than a passion. Passion isn't love. Passion is just passion. What's love? Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, and it'll be up on the board and you can read it, but if you have a Bible, you can turn to it. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy. He's using the same word for love there, agape, which is a love that is different. It's not just a warm feeling or affection or a brotherly love or an erotic sexual love. It's something different. And he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is what our Lord said. Are you getting that? This is what Jesus, our Lord, God in the flesh said. It's not right to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's what a child does of heaven. That's when your identity is a son and daughter of God or a follower of Jesus. That's what you do. That's your heart. Why? Because that's God's heart. And that's what he's doing. And if you're experiencing him and fellowshipping with him, that's what you're going to be doing too. And he goes on. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends range on the, rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet people only, uh, only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? And we know that's true. It's easy to greet those that you're close to and that are your family or those that you're a bird of a feather with, because that's easy. It's simple. It's not really demonstrating love. It's just affection and bond and, and community. And pagans can do that. Tax collectors, that was the worst person that, that Jesus could throw out there because they were despised. Even they will do that with one another. But he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what he means by that is be perfect in love. Love others. Love even your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Our first John passage, along with Jesus' words here in Matthew 5, they show us that love definitely is not a feeling. It's not something you fall out of or into. That is not love. In fact, I'm going to give you a working definition, and it's going to be up on the screen, and you can write it, or you can take a picture of it. It, I, it kind of ebbs and flows with me, and I add things. I added one word to it this time, because I felt that we needed it. Maybe I needed to hear this more. Love is a lifelong commitment to the consideration and the well-being of another person. That's love. Love is a lifelong commitment to the consideration and well-being of another person. And really of all persons, if you're going to love them. I'm going to let you work this out a little bit with me. Your love is not something you give or take based upon favorable or unfavorable circumstances or situations. No. 
True love, according to Scripture and according to Jesus, is a choice. And it's a deep commitment that's rooted in the love and choice of God to love us. We love because he loved us. Love is not something we summon within ourselves. My love, I'm here to tell you, can only go so far. Your love can only go so far. And your love isn't going to go far enough to love me when I need that love the most. And my love isn't going to go far enough to love you when you need it the most. I'm here to tell you that. It's not going to happen. But our love is something that begins with God. And, and it flows into us because we choose to receive that love. And that love changes us. And then that love flows out from us to, to those that we choose to love. And make no mistake, we are told to love everyone. We are told to love everyone. That's what our Lord said. So the Apostle Paul... He'll define and he'll describe the attributes of true love that God wants you to receive from him and choose to give to other people. And he, he defined this in 1 Corinthians. It's a, it's a great passage. We read it all the time, but I wonder if we live in it all the time. But in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, and we'll have that scripture up as well, he tells us about the attributes of true love and what we could choose and what's possible because of the love that's in our life. And are you ready for these attributes? Love is patient. I'm known as a flexible person. And people smile and always laugh when I say that. But I am pretty flexible. But I've never been known as a patient person. But I believe I've grown in patience. And, and that's how I'm supposed to demonstrate love to others by being patient. You know, what about you, right? So it tells us love is patient. Love is kind. Kind is not being nice. Kind is not being nice. Kind is having a balance of grace and truth. That's what kindness is, right? It's caring about a person's well-being and their consideration. That's what kindness is. And we sometimes think being kind is just being nice or being tolerant. That's not it at all, and it does not fit the word in Scripture. We're not supposed to be obnoxious with it, but kind is not that. So it says love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Those are important characteristics. It does not dishonor others. Think about that. It does not dishonor others. If you're going to love someone, you're not going to dishonor them. What about when you love a parent? How many of us ever dishonored our parent? Okay. You didn't love them. How many of you dishonored a, a spouse? You didn't love them. How many of you dishonored a boss at work? You didn't love them. What about a teacher at school? Yeah. What about a coach? Oh, my gosh. I was a believer in loving Jesus, playing football in college. I'm here to tell you I despised my, my defensive coordinator. I was a starter, too, but I despised him. It was everything I could do to just look at him with sense of kindness. I didn't love him. And the Lord showed me that. He said, 
I could have used you and done some things through you, but you, you know, I love you, but that ship has sailed because you weren't willing or ready to love. Love your, your defensive coordinator. Isn't that wild? You take responsibility over that for yourself? We need to. We're believers. We're called to love. If you haven't loved a parent, boy, I wrote a letter one time telling God how much I didn't love a parent. I had to repent of it and did. And then God filled me with love for that parent. You see? That's how it works. We're called to love. We're called to love. It goes on. It is not self-seeking. It's considerate. And being considerate is such an important way to love people in our lives. Boy, for us husbands especially to love our wives, to be considerate instead of not. What about our neighbors? To be considerate of our neighbors. We live next to them. We live around them. Let's be considerate of them. What about our leaders? They have to try to lead. And we're like herding cats sometimes, aren't we, in our culture? Or in our city? Or sometimes even in the church. Right? We've, we've got to be considerate of them. We feel like it's okay to beat up on leaders. They can take it. You know, they're people too. They're people too. It goes on. It is not easily angered. Anger is, is couched in fear most of the time for us. It keeps no record of wrongs. How do you like that? If you're going to love, you're not going to keep a record of wrong. How many of us ever had a record of wrong? Oh man, I know it. I'm with you. I'm with you. Before Jesus, I had a record of wrong, and after Jesus, I had to lose my record of wrong. But I kept wanting to keep one. <laughs> and I felt like one time I was driving, and I was praying, riding my motorcycle, I was praying, I go, man, God, I feel like I'm pretty good. My, my heart's pretty clean now. It's pretty good. I don't have anybody I have any trouble with. But Lord, by the way, just in case I'm not getting it, would you show me? And between one light and the other, he showed me five people <laughs> that I was unaware of that I had a record of wrong with. See, we have blind spots. And we have to keep daily, ask the Lord to expose us in the Holy Spirit. Because that's what happens. Wrongs have a way of building up. Love does not delight in, in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. If you've got somebody in your life, and I love to say this with a teacher, boss, coach, parent, anybody that might be an authority over you, and you don't protect them, and you don't hope for them, and you don't trust them, I'm here to tell you, you are dancing on a line, and you're not loving them. And you're not... And God's not able to use you as a lover of them in their lives. He wants to do that. We all have to think about that. And then it finally says this. Love, this lifelong commitment toward the consideration and well-being of another, it never fails. It never fails. It never fails. If you're willing to love people like that, it'll never fail. It will never fail. The scripture doesn't say much about other things like that than this, but it will never fail. Faith might fail. Hope might fail. 
But love will never fail. It'll never fail if we love people like this. So this love holds up to truth. It holds truth up just as high as grace. It's actually a combination, a great combination of grace and truth because it doesn't minimize or abandon one over the other. In 1 John, our passage tells us that God loved us so much that he did not ignore or minimize the truth of our circumstances or our sins. Rather, he faced our sins and he sacrificed himself in payment of those sins. Verse 10 states this again, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Did, it, did the son deserve that? Did the son, was it fair for the son to die for us? Was it fair for the father to lose? Was it fair to lose his son? Was it fair for him to be humiliated and used? Was it fair? Was it right? No, it was gracious. And it was the truth. And he took care of business. And we can be forgiven if we'll receive that truth. Finally, since God so loved us, the scripture tells us at the end of this John passage that we ought to love one another. And I'm here to remind you, when John writes on in verse 11 of our passage, he's stating that we owe love to others. We owe the same kind of love we receive, we owe to others. You better hear that from me. Because God will hold you and me accountable for that. And as a preacher of the gospel, I'm going to preach you the truth. Paul said this in Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. All you high truth people out there, it doesn't say you owe everybody the truth. Oh, no man, nothing but to tell them the truth. Right? Oh, no man, nothing but to make sure something is just. Oh, man, nothing but to make sure everything is fair. Doesn't say that. Oh, no man, anything but to love him or her. To love him or her. Wow. Because when you love others, you fulfill the law. You don't judge it. That's important for us to hear. Could you imagine what it would be like to be in a relationship with someone whose sincere priority was to pursue your consideration in your lifelong well-being? My gosh, how could you resist that? How wonderful would that be? Especially if they, if they, they loved you over themselves and put you before themselves. What would it be like to be in a relationship with someone who fully believed and understood that they owed you day in and day out, at your worst and at your best, the same love that they've been loved by from God and received through Jesus. If they loved you in that, what would that be like? Wow. Love is to be the precious gift of every believer. It's what we're to give to others and to the world. Love is to be the witness of every follower of Christ to a lost and hurting world. And love is to be the beauty of every church, small group, every ministry area to a watching world. The Bible says, in fact, John said at the very end of verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete and seen in us. 
it's not made complete and seen in our judgment, in our, in our seeking fairness and seeking justice. So why did Stephen go so far for hard people? What did he understand? What did he experience that we don't always understand and experience? He understood these things about love. He understood them. I'm here to tell you, for quite a while as a follower early on, I actually thought as a believer that I was supposed to make things fair where they were unfair, and as a leader I was to bring justice where everything was unjust. You know, that was my motto, that was my concern. Um, but what I learned is that this crusader mentality and perspective knocked me off mission with Jesus. It really did. This mindset kept me from doing Jesus' will in the situations and the circumstances that he placed me in. It's true. And I'm sure you've been in the same circumstances. I had to learn that God places me in relationships and he places me in places not to judge those places or those people unfairly or myoptically, that means narrowly, but he put me there to seek righteousness. He put me there to grow in faithfulness to him and to others while they were at their worst. And to display the, the generous grace and mighty power and extravagant love of a patient Lord in those relationships and places. That's what I was supposed to do. Rather than to judge them and to seek for justice. Rather than to exhibit all the opposites of love. Or to seek fairness. Life's not fair. Wasn't fair for Stephen, was it? But grace isn't fair. Truth isn't fair. Love isn't fair. They're, they're important. So I had to learn, and, and what, I, what I came back to is, is back in the day that I, I wrongly wanted justice more than righteousness. What about you? The Bible says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you'll be filled. We are to be the sons and daughters of God. We are to reflect the glory of the Lord. We are to show, shower people with the same love that we received in Christ. That's righteousness. That's not justice. Because had we received justice, oh baby, you know, you'd be in trouble big time. And I hope that you can travel with me away from this sense of wanting justice and fairness so that you only want righteousness alone. See, Stephen understood these things, and, and with experiencing the grace and love of Christ poured into his heart through the Holy Spirit who came to live within him, he no longer had this divided heart. He no longer had a hard, divided heart, but he had an undivided heart that was singular, and it was soft. He was experiencing God's love, and he was owing others that love that he allowed to flow in him from Christ. See, that's what we have to do daily. We have to, we have to come and abide before the Lord. That's what it means to abide before him, and we'll bear fruit, the fruit of love. It's got to come from God. He has showered it upon us, but we have to be able to walk in fellowship in it. I want you to listen again to 1 John 4, 16 through 21. God is love, John writes again later in that chapter, in chapter 4. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. 
This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. He has to say that again because he knows we need, it needs to be repeated. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister, now, John gets real, is a liar. So if you claim to love God and you don't love a brother or sister, or you don't love your enemies, you're a bull-faced liar. You don't love God. And I'm going to tell you that straight. Is John being kind? Yes, he's being kind. Because we can be self-deceived and start wanting to go back to live according to justice, not righteousness. And live in the world and like the world. And earn our salvation. We don't deserve it. we got to live in the fellowship of God and live in the kingdom and the blessings of the Spirit. And so John says, hey, you're a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they see cannot love God whom they have not seen. God's their father. God's your father. Now love like your father loves you. And if you're not in that love, get in it. So that you can love that way. And it says that this, he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister. So, why else did Stephen go so far? He understood this love now, and that he's got to live in this love, but why else did he go so far in his love and sacrifice for hard people? Well, we even talked about this on our Tuesday night small group. He understood this, and he experienced it. What Paul wrote about in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. He understood that the goal and priority and mission of Jesus on earth and the goal and priority and mission of his followers on earth are this. And this is what it says in that scripture, if it isn't up on the board. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God wants us to love people to unity. He wants us to be a uniter. He wants every person to know they're a part of his big story. Your small story is a part of my big story. And I want to unite with you. I want you to know I died to take away your sin. I atoned for you to unite you with me. I paid that on the cross. You need to know that. You can be forgiven and set free. But I also want you to come and join me and unite with me because I want others to know that. And I am trying to unite all things under heaven and earth under Jesus before I return. That's my desire. I wish that none should perish, Peter said in 2 Peter 3.9, but all would come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. That's why God said, I'm not slow, I'm patient. Because I don't want people to die without me and without being saved. Because if I come back, and when I do come back, it'll be over. That's our mission. So I'm here to ask you, as we close in prayer, where are you in experiencing that kind of love? Are you abiding with the Lord daily? Are you letting his word richly dwell within you? And are you experiencing his love so that you can be a conduit for, of that love to others in your life? Are there hard people in your life you just don't love? In fact, you hate them. I've, I've had to admit that to the Lord. And as I admitted it to the Lord and said, God, I'm willing to repent of it, now I'm asking you to fill me with love for that person, what do you think God does? He changes my heart and he fills me with love for that person. 
you know what, I always found that to be so comical. People who I hated so much, some of them I led to Christ later and was a part of their salvation story. And I thought, hmm, people that really offended me, they messed around with my girlfriend, you know, back in the day. They, did, they just did stuff that super annoyed me and made my life rough. And yet now, when I love them and, and forgive them, God leads them to himself. <laughs> what? Okay. I'm glad I got to be a part of that, Lord. I'm glad. Because we're all knuckleheads without Jesus. Amen? Amen. So are we, are we experiencing that love? Are we living in that love daily? But the other question is this. Am I a uniter? Because of that love. Am I a uniter? You come and tell me if you think that I, I don't act like I accept you or if I've rejected you because I'll repent of it and I'm sorry. But we're all to be uniters. That means we're to love people that aren't like us, that don't look like us, they don't act like us, they're not our age, they're not in our demographic. That's what we're supposed to demonstrate as the body of Christ, the church. We, we're, we're a group of crazy people who love each other, who come from totally different backgrounds with totally different Myers-Briggs things and totally different Enneagram numbers. And yet they can love each other and they show each other grace. That's such a testimony to the world because the world doesn't know anything about that. They know they're not going to do that. They're not going to love like that. So they're looking to us as a church, and when we love each other like that, and we really begin to be uniters who try to unite people into Christ, they take notice. There are hard people in your life who need Jesus. There are hard people in this church who need Jesus. Are you a uniter? Are we willing to bring them in? We've got to be uniters, or guess what happens? The moment a church begins to not be uniters, we begin to die. And it's over. It's over. We have to welcome new people into our body. We have to welcome new people into our small groups. We have to welcome new people into our relationships. We must be uniters. Because God, that's His heart, trying to unite everyone. You unite with people that have kids that go to maze. Unite with people that have kids that go to Northwest. And I say that only because they all rip on each other. Right? Back and forth, and they have a competition with each other. Unite with people who live in South Wichita. Unite with people who live in North. Unite with people who don't even live in Wichita. Right? Unite with people who've got no hair. Unite with people who've got hair down to the middle of their back. Unite with people. We're not going to be perfect. Right? But we can love each other. And we can show each other the love of Christ in us. That love that cares, it's considerate, and it, it seeks for people's well-being. And then, one that unites and say, I accept and I embrace you. I love you. I want you to stand, let's close in prayer. Thanks for hanging out with me. And let me hang out with you a little longer today. Hey, I want you to raise your hand if you are a children's ministry worker who works in our Sunday morning thing, whether it's nursery, uh, child care, or in uh, 
in the kids' church stuff. Raise your hand high if you work in that. Raise your hand high. High, high, high. We only got two in this? You're the only two? They're all working. Thank you. But see also, see that? In our unity, we need to have more than two workers here working in that kids' ministry. Amen? That's just kind of being real. And maybe I'm going to be one of them who's going to have to get in there. Um, so I want you to pray about that. Because our children are, you know, it sounds cliche, they are our future. And they're disciples. And uh, they, need, they need Jesus and they need us. So sincerely consider praying to be a part of that ministry. But we want to thank you, too, for doing it. Uh, we are honored and blessed by you. you. We really are. And those that are in there as well. So let's lift them up in prayer. And if you're around them, you can put a hand on them as we close in prayer this morning. Lance is right over here. Yeah. All right. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful and thankful for one another. But, Father, we're so grateful for your great love that searched us out when we were down and out, when we were lost, when we did not deserve it, when we so rudely shined you on and treated you. You heard the prayers of other believers. You knew your heart. You knew the Son's heart. You knew the Holy Spirit's heart. And you all acted to save us. Thank you for that. Thank you for that generous, great love. And thank you, Father, for pouring that out into our hearts this morning, anew and afresh. We want to be lovers like you are, Lord. And the world sometimes distracts us and beats us down. And, and we lose sight of where we're heading. But God, we know this morning that we're heading to be lovers of other people. So God, love through us, we pray, and especially those hard people in our lives. Help us to love them again. And then, Lord, we know we're uniters as well. We're called to accept and embrace other people and to let them know that their story is a part of God's story. And that you have died to unite them with yourself, Lord, and you want to bring them into unity with your people so that your kingdom would grow and be ready for your return. God, we want to see as many as possible saved, Lord. Um, and so, Father, help us to be ambassadors for Jesus, to be uniters. And help us to do that, start that with each other. And then may it go out from us to others in our community that need to know you as Lord and Savior. As we ask this in Jesus' name. We thank you for Stephen's example. We know that many times that the church grows through the blood of the martyrs that have laid down their lives on the behalf of others who have mirrored that same sacrificial love and commitment as you, Lord Jesus, mirrored. We thank you for him. We thank you for his example. So may we learn from it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Now, Father, bless our children's workers and our, uh, those that care about our young little disciples. God, fill them with love and let them know how much we love and appreciate them and bless them today. We ask this in Jesus' name, and bless that ministry, that it would move forward and grow and thrive to a new place of blessing. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. And we all said together, amen, amen. amen.